Well, good morning and welcome to Labor Day weekend. I hope you have some time to be refreshed, to be still, to quiet yourself, and to enjoy one another. Listen to a story of a 16-year-old who loves sports. When he was five, he was already dunking. He found great pleasure in slamming that junior-sized orange ball into the oversized rim of the little tykes goal. Does anybody remember these? (laughs) Now, when this boy was seven, his desire ran faster than his legs, and he sprained his ankle during a little dribbler's game. And at age 12, basketball was now woven together with peer approval. He still loved the game, but he also loved the cheerleaders. Now, things got serious at age 14, when he barely made the cut for the traveling team. And that's when basketball became life, and life became basketball, and it was hard to tell the difference. But when he turned 15, Jesus became more real to this little teenager. He started reading his Bible in secret, unsure at what others would think of this new love. While still investing most of his spare time in his first love, sports, he felt more and more disappointed with the payoff. All that energy and time and physical exertion, all the promise of popularity among peers, all the hopes of gaining his dad's approval, all of the dreams of sinking that winning shot, being hoisted up by his teammates with the crowds chanting, Brandon, Brandon. Well, they never came true. (laughs) Turns out his first love wasn't a great lover after all. The promises were broken. The dreams exaggerated. The idea of belonging by earning, was soul-crushing. So as a 16-year-old who loved sports, I was faced with a decision. Without the words for it at the time, I was entering a discernment process. I would even call it my first major discernment process. Would I keep at it in hopes that eventually the rewards would come, the popularity would come, I'd be hoisted up by my teammates? Or would I quit and face that shameful label, quitter. How does a 16-year-old face such a decision? How do any of us? How does one discern what direction is best? At that time, when Jesus was becoming more real to me, more than just a historical figure, more than just someone my parents honor, at that time, I prayed to him. I prayed for wisdom. I read the scriptures. I reflected on the ideas that stuck with me from sermons, and I listened to my inner spirit. Now, I had no language for any of this at the time, but I was listening for the Holy Spirit to agree with my spirit about the direction to take. No one taught me how to do this. I just did it. This is the process that came to me naturally. Now, why did I do it this way? I don't know. Perhaps Jeremiah's prophecy was true when God said, I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. So when the sophomore season was over, I knew what I had to do. Dare I say, I knew what God wanted me to do. Of course, I was still unsure at the time, but providence is so clear in hindsight, isn't it? At the time, I sensed in my spirit a decision which seemed to agree with the Holy Spirit. I can still remember where I was seated in the locker room when a strong clarity came over me and a rush of peace ran through my veins and I said to God and to myself, I am going to quit basketball. 
All that I had counted worthy of my best efforts, all that I had placed my hopes and dreams in for so long, by the grace of God, I was giving it up. But not just that. I was going to quit, and the idea came into my mind that I would relocate the time and energy and discipline previously devoted to sports, and instead devote that time, energy, and discipline to knowing God. As I look back, I believe it's not an exaggeration that this was one of the six major decisions in my life thus far. You can ask me about the other five later. But I'm not the hero in the story. We never are. God is the hero. He always is. And that process that took place within me happened only because of the grace of God. The ideas that entered my brain came by the grace of God. In fact, as I look back, and probably as you look back, all of the major decisions of our lives, they have transpired solely on account of the generosity of God, who desires to give wisdom and direction to each one of us, even 16-year-olds. I open with this personal story to provide a case study of what personal discernment often looks like. I also hope it exposes the myth that only the most spiritual religious things are worth discerning. I hope this example demonstrates the wide variety of decisions that God wants to be a part of in our lives, in your life. All of life is spiritual, even what we do with our leisure time. And God wants to be a part of it. And I also hope this example serves as a reminder that we're faced with significant decisions at every stage of life. One thing I lacked in my story, but desperately wanted, was someone older than me and more mature in their faith to come alongside me and listen carefully to my struggles and serve as a guide. I didn't have that, but other kids can have that. We can be those adults. Well, they're just kids, you might say, just teenagers. No one's just a kid. Every kid is made by God, and every kid is made to meet their maker. And they are faced, you might not know this, but they are faced with a tremendous amount of pressure and anxiety and fear that would prevent them from living the sort of life Christ died for them to have. So whether you're a 16-year-old trying to figure out how to spend your time, who to date, whether to break up with that girlfriend, where to go to college, or whether you're a 36-year-old trying to figure out what new opportunities to say yes to and which ones to say no to, whether you're a 56-year-old trying to figure out whether to switch jobs or whether you'll have enough for retirement or how to help your kids figure out their lives, or whether you're a 76-year-old trying to figure out why you're still here, what to do with your time that's useful, that you're still able to do, and how to help your grandkids grow up in a world of uncertainty. Whoever you are, whatever life stage you're in, decisions, significant decisions, continue to come your way. How do you figure out what to do? If you're a Christian, you might wonder, what does God want me to do? What does God want me to do? This question cuts to the heart of the thing called discernment. As we said last week, discernment is the capacity to recognize and respond to the presence and activity of God, personally and in community. In other words, discernment is the ability to know and do what God wants. Depending on where, your life, where you're at in your life right now, growing in this capacity may seem pressing or it may not. 
But for us as a whole, for us who make up Heartland Community Church, for us, growing in this capacity to discern is especially significant right now. That's what the community conversation was about last week. We began the process of listening to one another and our various perspectives and ideas concerning what to do as we prepare for the future of our youth ministry. So what are our next steps? How do we discern together practically what God wants for our youth and our youth ministry? Or how do you discern as an individual maneuvering the windy road of life? When we invite God into the room, the question turns into prayer. Let this prayer serve as our prayer for illumination this morning. Pray with me. Holy Spirit of God, you are generous to give wisdom to those who ask. We come before you in need of such direction today, some of us personally and all of us corporately. Show us the path you want us to take as we follow Jesus in mission for the glory of God and the good of the world. Amen. We come once more to Romans 8, verses 14 through 17. It's a short passage, and we read it last week, but it's packed full with insight pertaining to discernment. My hope is that as we unpack these four verses over the remainder of our time, you will grow in your capacity to discern the good and gracious will of God for your life and for the life of this church. So hear now the word of the Lord. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are children of God. For you did not receive, you did not receive a spirit of slavery, to fall back into fear, but you have received a spirit of adoption. When we cry, Abba, Father, it is that very spirit bearing witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if in fact we suffer with him, so that we also may be glorified with him. This is the word of the Lord. Three insights about discernment come from this passage. The first is this. As Christians, we make all of our decisions in the context of a father-child relationship. Decision-making happens in the context of a relationship between you, God's beloved child, and your heavenly father. This point is basic, but it's so important. If we miss it, we get derailed right from the start. When you are making the decisions and when you invite God into the process of helping you figure it out, it's so important to notice the obvious. This is not your first conversation with God. <laughs> there is a history of relationship between you, God's son, God's daughter, and the living God. This is not your first time talking together. This is not your first rodeo. The relational history frames how we think about God's will. When we forget this relational context, our thinking can get derailed in a couple different ways. One way is to begin thinking of God's will as a blueprint. The idea here is that God has designed your life from start to finish, and our job is to somehow accurately read the blueprint and mirror our lives accordingly. When our lives seem off track, we just return to the blueprint and figure out what went wrong, and we try to correct our mistakes. Now, what's wrong with that? The problem with understanding God's will as a blueprint is that it forgets the most important aspect of God's will, 
which is that God wills to have a personal interactive relationship with you, like a father to a child. God, your father, has not written a manual and placed it on a bookshelf for you to consult now and again, especially when you're in a tough spot. That's certainly not what the Bible is. Rather, God comes to you as a person, the person of Jesus Christ. And through Jesus, God desires to share an intimate life with you, a life of daily conversation made possible by the Spirit that Jesus put within you. So we read the Bible as a key part of that conversation, but it's not a manual we consult every now and then to figure out step one and step two. Therefore, discerning God's will is a matter of learning to hear the Father's still small voice and learning to obey it. Now, another error is thinking of God's will as an equation, as a math problem. In this view, figuring out God's will is like solving a difficult math problem. Does anyone like math here? We got a couple. <laughs> I liked math until the numbers turned into letters, and then it was, it was just downhill from there. The idea of viewing God's will as a math problem means that our job is to crack the code so that we can clearly see A from B and B from C. Again, this supposes that God is distant. It supposes that God likes secrets, that for some reason God likes keeping his plans hidden from you. And if this were true, one could imagine that God takes pleasure in watching you from a distance, working hard at trying to solve his genius problem. But that's not the God we encounter in the scriptures either. Instead, what we see in the scriptures and our experiences of God testify to this truth is a God who longs to be known by us as our Father. We see a God who longs to be known by us as our Father. We experience a God who adopts us as God's own child. Through God's Spirit, we rightly know who we are deep down. Therefore, we cry out, Abba, Father, this cry, which is the peculiar address from Jesus to the Father, becomes our address to the Father. We can know God personally in intimate terms. Abba, Father, we cry out this cry, which is at the core of our identity. At the core, we are children of God. And all of our decision-making operates out of this relationship. So that's how God deals with us as a father. And it's the same when we make decisions, decisions both big and small. We walk together with our father who desires to generously give us wisdom. So before moving to point two, there's another nuance you need to know, another shade of meaning that will help us stay on the right track as we discern with the father. It's this. Wisdom is not the same thing as command. Wisdom is not the same thing as command. God wants us to ask for wisdom as we deal with life's challenges and decisions. But wisdom is not command. God provides wisdom as we discern, not rules and commands. Do this or else. To make sense of this distinction, we turn our attention to two categories of God's will that Christians throughout the centuries have found helpful in understanding this. Our Christian ancestors have found it helpful to think in terms of, one, God's general will, and two, God's special will. 
You'll notice these as I talk about them. You just maybe didn't use these terms before. God's general will is primary. It's nicely summed up in 1 Thessalonians 4. This is the will of God, your sanctification. That's the fancy word for your ongoing spiritual transformation. Your deepening life with the Father, that's God's will. Your growth into mature disciple of Jesus, whose heart looks more like the heart of Christ. That is the will of God. That's the primary answer to the question, what does God want me to do? God wants you to live and love like Jesus. That's primary. And this is not simply a wise suggestion. This is a command. If you ignore it, your soul will start to shrivel, not as a punishment, but as a natural consequence. So Jesus said, a new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. This is the command, and this is, the, is God's general will. Now, does that mean that God does not really care then whether I quit the basketball team or not? Does God not really care about whether I go to this college or that college? Does God not really care whether I take this job or that job? Does God even want to say in what we do with youth leadership at Heartland? I think the answer is yes, God cares, and yes, God wants a say. This is God's special will. God's unique will for individuals and communities. As some church leaders have phrased it recently, this is what we call God's preferred future. God cares and God wants a say in your decisions, not because God's a control freak, but because of the relationship. God is our father and we are God's children. And like the best of human fathers, God wants to guide us and give us wisdom generously as we seek to participate in God's mission for the common good. But I must repeat, wisdom is not command. Does that make sense? When none of the options where we're considering, when none of them go against the law of love, then God's wisdom and direction come to us not in the sense of, well, you must do this or else. Our loving Father does not treat us like a drill sergeant treats a soldier. Instead, God treats us like his responsible children. When the law of love is met, God gives us wisdom to guide us, not commands to rule us. Suppose a father has a son in college. The son has grown up knowing he's loved by the father, and he's becoming more and more of the person the father wants him to be. And now, suppose the son calls the father from college or starts a video chat with him and asks, Hey, Dad, what is your will for my major in college? I want to do your will, not my will, so please tell me what major to choose. How does the father respond? With a command? Well, I'm glad you asked, son. Pulling out a thick binder, he goes on. Here's the blueprint for your career path. I've carefully laid out every step for you ever since you were born. Make sure you consult this often so that you stay on the right track. Is this good parenting? No? I I don't know. I haven't been there yet. (laughs) I don't think so. This seems a little controlling, and I don't think it would work. And I also don't think that's the way our Heavenly Father parents either. When faced with decisions, and none of the options go against the law of love, 
The father doesn't respond with command. But neither does the father place the decision solely on the son's shoulders. Rather, the father responds with wisdom. Son, I am honored that you would come to me with this question, that you'd trust me. I'd be glad to help you think this through. But know that whatever you do, I will be with you along the journey, and I will love you no matter what. Now let's get started. What do you desire in your heart of hearts? Friends, I think that's a better picture of how God relates to us in our decision-making. It's not a blueprint. It's not a math problem. It's a conversation between a son who trusts his father and wants to make him happy, and a father who loves his son and wants to give him the deepest desires of his heart. Psalm 37, verse 4, sums it up. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. That's the relation of a father with a son. A more technical way to say what I'm trying to say, which may help a few of you, it may not help others, it's in your bulletin. Thomas Oden writes, God does not deal with human beings as sticks. God does not throw them like stones in order to coerce virtuous responses. This would deny free personal responsiveness. God deals with human beings not coercively, but persuasively, respecting human freedom and its ever-present correlate human responsibility. So friends, God wills to empower other wills. God's will does not obliterate our willing. God creates us with the capacity to create, to decide, to go one way rather than the other, and that's a good thing, not a bad thing. So point number one, and we spent considerable time on this because it's so foundational. Point number one, as we make decisions, we do so in the context of a close relationship with God our Father, who delights in giving us wisdom along the journey. Point number two, now that we understand the relational context, how do we have the conversation? How do we have a conversation with the Father about decisions? Verse key, verse 16 is key. The Holy Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. The Holy Spirit bears witness with our spirit about something that is true. We have a conversation with the Father about decisions by listening to the Spirit say something true to our spirit. This is not easy to explain, (laughs) We don't think about the inner dimension that we call the spirit very often. So let me start just by asking, did you know that you had a spirit? (laughs) When Paul uses the term, he means that the human spirit is the inner life of a person. Sometimes the New Testament uses the term soul, and most scholars believe these to be the same. The soul or the spirit refers to the inner dimension of a person. And it's large, very large, and spacious. And it's where you listen to God in your spirit. And it's where you commune with God in your spirit. It's there that Christ dwells. Colossians 1 tells us that this is the mystery that was hidden for ages and generations, but has now been revealed to us. 
which is Christ living in you, the hope of glory. Christ lives in you, in your spirit, that spacious place inside of you where God delights to be. It's there, it's there that God makes you beautiful. So let me ask, or let me say that when we try to listen to the Holy Spirit, we're doing, what we're doing is we're, we're listening to something that resonates with our own spirit, something that's true. But when we do this, when we set ourselves to this task, when we pay attention to what's happening inside of us, we'll soon discover all sorts of other voices, and most of them are not worth listening to. Anyone who has tried silence and solitude even a couple times knows what I'm talking about. When we try to get quiet and listen to our own spirits, to listen to that still small voice where the spirit's speaking to our spirit, when we try to do this, we also hear all sorts of other voices. There's the false self, the anxious self, the fearful self, the ashamed self, the ego, the inner critic, and so many other devils that go, so, go by so many other names. All this ruckus causes most of us to just avoid silence altogether. In fact, some of us are terrified with silence. We use distractions and noise and social media and TV and radio to drown out all these unpleasant voices. But sadly, such busyness also drowns out the voice of God. If you want to hear God, to have an honest conversation with him about decisions, you must be silent. And when these noisy intruders present themselves, you must dismiss them one by one. Get behind me, Satan. Get behind me, ego. Get behind me, fear, shame. When we do this, we make room to listen to the Holy Spirit Bear witness with our spirit about things that are true. So, for example, if it's fear that we're hearing when we get quiet, that's a good indicator it's not the voice of God. For you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, God says, but you've received a spirit of adoption. So when we tune in and we hear the voice of fear, the scriptures help us know that this is not the voice of the Father. And here's an important principle. The scriptures are such an encouragement to us as we try to test the spirits, as we try to listen to what's of God and what's not. The scriptures are indispensable for distinguishing the voice of the spirit for all the other voices. So if we're going to have an honest conversation with the Father about our decisions, we must get silent and we must increasingly trust God to speak to us, both in the scriptures and in that still, small voice. So the first insight from Romans 8 was that our decision-making happens in the context of a loving relationship between God the Father and us as children. And the second insight is that the conversation about decisions happens primarily by listening. We must listen deeply. We are listening for the place where the Holy Spirit bears witness with our spirits about things that are true. So we listen to our own spirits. 
We listen to the spirits of others in whom God dwells. And we listen to the Holy Spirit through the encouragement of the scriptures. And we listen to the Spirit in solitude and prayer, waiting for that still small voice. That's how we have the conversation of discernment. The third and final insight on discernment from Romans 8 is this. The specific will of God will bring us to a place of shared mission with Jesus. And this will be a mission of suffering love. Verse 18 is key. If we are children, then we are also heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. If, in fact, we suffer with him so that we may also be glorified with him. You see, we are not only making our way through life as God's children. We are also winding our way through the uncertainties of life as God's heirs. That is, we are those who have received an inheritance from our Father. And we are not alone in this. In fact, we are joint heirs with Christ. Do you understand the honor in this? Do you understand how God must feel about you? To not only adopt you as his child, but to entrust you with his inheritance. To make you a joint heir with Christ. Friends, this is the living God we're talking about. The God of the cosmos. This God has promised that we little humans will inherit a glory prepared for us from the foundations of the world. This is good news, amen? And this future hope, that everything which is now Christ by nature, that special relationship with the Father, will be ours one day by adoption and fullness. It's this future hope that ought to inspire our mission in the present. Friends, we are joint heirs with Christ. We are more than conquerors. We are on the winning team. We are the victors. We are playing offense, not defense. We haven't received a spirit of fear. We've received a spirit of adoption. And yes, we will suffer. Good works can hardly be done without suffering. This fourth century Cyril of Alexandria says, Yet the suffering of the saints is nourished by great hope. For it's not just the earthly that is promised, but rather eternal glory. Or in the words of Jesus, In this world you will face troubles, but take heart. For I have overcome the world. So that's how we discern with the Father. First, we discern by recognizing that we're living out of a relationship of trust. We're God's children. He's our Father. He wants to guide us with wisdom. And second, we have this conversation by listening. Listening for the Spirit, speak through Scripture. Listening for the Spirit to say something true that resonates with our spirit. And third, we recognize that we will suffer as we share in Christ's mission. For Christ suffered, but it's a suffering love that will save the world. Let us pray. God, your mysteries, your mysteries are beyond comprehension that you would call us your children, that you would make us heirs with Christ. 
that you would live within us and our spirits. But we believe your words. And we ask, Lord, that you'd help us trust them. You'd help us to discern. You'd help us to walk with you. And in our decisions that come our way, may you help us have this conversation with you. Lord, remove the fears of all those other voices. May we trust that we are more than conquerors in Jesus Christ. May we move forward in mission for the glory of God and the good of the world. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.